All right, let's read. Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I just uh, come before you now and ask that as we walk through this text, as we walk through this word, um, that you would just open up our hearts and ears for what you have for us. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you. Help us to be challenged, encouraged as we walk through this uh, gospel presentation that Paul presents to us this morning. Bless our time. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. I uh, recently read an article on the internet, um, and it was about, I'm just going to scoot stuff around a little bit, it was about this idea that you could look the, at a person and the way a person walks and kind of determine maybe something about their personality or what kind of type of person they are. And so... Um, I wrote down the names, but I'm sure I wrote them down wrong. So they're like in my own lingo, so it's going to be like pretty much really childish, but just roll with it, okay? For all intents and purposes, they're the real names. Okay. So, let's just imagine then that, I don't know, you're at the bakery, like the cool bakery we have in town, which, by the way, I know that they are just doing so well because I convinced Mary to buy Lotus Energy Drink, and you're welcome, Mary. I know they're, they're looking into opening up a second location, and it's just, they're booming, all because of me. I'm just kidding, that's a joke. But they're all doing really great. But anyways, back to my thing. If, if you're sitting at the bakery, and maybe you're enjoying a Lotus or a nice espresso drink, and you're eating one of those really, really good cinnamon rolls, you can watch people walk in and out of the building, right? And, and people will walk in certain ways. The, the first one, uh, they're the type of people that drag their feet like this, kind of walk with a heaviness on them. I'm going to call them feet draggers because that's the name the article gave me, I promise. And, and these are the type of people who, I think the article put it really well. They said essentially that they're the type of people that have so much worry in their lives that they can't separate the worry from how they move and walk. And so they're worriers, right? 
they are so consumed by their worry that they can't let it go. And so it shows when they walk. When they walk, they drag their feet like this. I walk like that sometimes. And that's something actually you'll notice about these different types of walkers, people who walk, because we all walk, right, most of us? No one's, okay. And you'll be able to relate to some of them, and some of them you'll be able to look, and as you watch these people walk in and out of, well, in my scenario, the bakery, you'll be able to notice, like, okay, that guy's dragging his feet. Probably has a heavy burden he's carrying around with him, right? He's probably feeling, or she is feeling some sort of weight on them, and they're struggling. How about another type? I call these ones think walkers. Or sorry, the article told me that. I didn't make it up. These are the distracted people. I don't know, maybe they just walk. Maybe they have their head down. But they're always thinking about something. They always have something on their mind, right? They're, mm. um, this actually describes me perfectly, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I used to work at the high school as a janitor, as most of you know. And uh, I would be working on something, and I would go, oh, I need to go do this. Oh, but it's on the other side of the building. And so then I'd walk all the way to the other side of the building. I'd get to the spot, and I'd be like, why did I come here? What am I? And so then I have to walk back to where the thought started, see the thing, trigger the memory. Oh, that's right. That's what I'm doing. And so then I go back. And I kid you not, sometimes I would do that multiple times. Like, it would happen a lot. It's probably why it was best that I left. Just saying. And so these are the type of people that when they walk, they're distracted. And you can tell. You can see it in the way they step. You can see it in the way, uh, if you, maybe you look at their face, they're kind of like, I don't know. You ever see people who kind of like, well, I guess I could use myself as a description. I have a very expressive face, people tell me. And, and so if I'm angry or upset, like I can't hide it. My face will just show it. Thinker walkers are kind of like that, right? They walk around. You can just tell. Something's on their mind. They're distracted. Another type, cautious walkers. Maybe you've seen these type of people when they're in crowds, you can, they, they kind of go around the outskirts and they walk very timidly. They're shy. Maybe they're not, you know, they're the introverts that don't like uh, being around people, right? You got your cautious walkers. Some other walkers maybe are heavy walkers. And this has nothing to do with their weight per se, but just, you know, well, actually the best way I can describe it is I have small children and when they get mad at me, what do they do when they go in their room? They stomp, right? They're not gliding gleefully. They're like, slam the door. I don't like you right now, daddy. Right? Maybe, or mommy, you know. So they're heavy walkers. Most people who walk with a heaviness towards them, like, and I'm talking like heavy, like they're mad. You know, maybe they're kind of childish and they lose their temper a lot. Maybe they just, they, they have a hard time letting go of things. They're just always upset, right? Another walker. These ones kind of become maybe more positive. Um, these ones are called drivers. And they're not like physically driving a car because, well, we're, my analogy is walking, right? So that one makes sense. But they're the type of people who like know where they're going, know what they're doing, and it's almost as if like their body moves faster than their legs, right? Because they're like thinking deep and they're like trying to get stuff done. Maybe they have their phone in their hand. They're multitaskers. They're productive driver walkers. Yeah, I like that. We're going with that. Driver walkers. You guys like my names? You should be writing these down. Take notes. These are good, good stuff. And then the last one I'll call peaceful striders. 
I looked up the word striding, right? And it's essentially a person who, it's, it's moving with purpose, right? And so these type of people walk casually and slow, almost light-footed. And you can tell that life is good. Maybe they're approachable. You can come up and talk to them, and they'll totally have a conversation with you. They stride and they walk with confidence, but not the type of confidence that's cocky. It's the type of confidence that you want to be around, right? And so, as we, maybe you're wondering, like, Jeremy, what does this have to do with Ephesians chapter 2? And I actually don't know. I just made that up right now. I'm just kidding. There is a point, I promise. You're going to notice something in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul does in the text that I've always found interesting. I think someone else pointed it out to me, so I'm not at all taking credit for this idea. But if you read this text from verse 1 to verse 10, you will see twice the word walk appear. The first walk is before Christ, right? And then the second walk is those in Christ or after Christ or after being saved. And this is a straight up, like this, just to be blunt with you from the start, this is like a gospel-centered message because what Paul is doing in this text is he's preaching the gospel. That's all he's doing. But maybe we need to know why he's preaching the gospel because I think it will relate to us. The letter to Ephesus, right, this is what Ephesians is, is written by the Apostle Paul. It is a letter that he wrote to a group of churches most likely around Ephesus, um, in the Asia, Asia Minor area. I can talk, promise. And so people don't know for sure what specific church it was written to. They later attributed it to Ephesians or to Ephesus. But it most likely was a circulated letter that a lot of churches in that area would have read and received and, and, and had. And so... In order to understand why Paul is choosing to preach the gospel in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we need a little context. At the time he's writing this, he's in prison. He's in jail. He's most likely in shackles. And jail back then wasn't what it is now. It wasn't very comfortable, let's just say that. And so he's writing this letter, and he's writing a letter to a church of people that he's never met before, as far as I know. He hasn't met them yet. And what he has heard is that these churches, being mostly Gentile churches, are in discouraging times. Maybe you can relate today. I know I can. And they're in discouraging times. And, and what I understand is there's a couple things going on with this church or churches. On the one end, a common struggle as the church began, because it stemmed from Judaism, right? Jews, Israelites, right? It stemmed for them. What was happening was, is a lot of Jewish Christians were coming into these Gentile churches. And just so you know, Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew back then. That's what a Gentile is. So if you don't have any Jew in you, that rhymes, you're a Gentile and I'm a Gentile. I'm pretty sure. I don't actually know my history very well, so we'll just say I'm a Gentile for now. And so the Jewish Christians would come into the church and they would go, in order for you to actually be a Christian Gentile guy, you got to do this. you got to follow this law. you got to get circumcised. If you don't know what circumcision is, children, ask your parents after the service. They would love to answer that question for you. You need to follow these rules. You need to follow this. You need to do that. You need to do that. You need to do that. Right? And so they feel this weight. They feel this pressure. I have to adhere to these rules. I have to do these things in order to be saved. But I thought 
the gospel is this, and I'm, I'm confused, and I don't understand, so they're discouraged. And then on the other end, maybe something else that they're struggling with is their past, right? A lot of these Gentiles came from very pagan backgrounds, where their temples are the type of temples that well, we would just call strip clubs today, right? And again, kids, if you don't know what that means, ask your parents after the service. <clears throat> or, you know, the, the parents are going to want to kick my butt after that one. Anyways, and, and so they have a past. They have uh, desires that they still wrestle with, that they want to be done with, but they, and they keep going back to it because that's all they've known their whole lives. But yet they've been set free in Christ because the gospel has come in and changed and shaped and loved them and moved them to change, but they're struggling. And so when Paul writes this letter, he knows that's what's happening. Because this is a real historical letter that actually happened. Paul actually wrote this letter thinking of discouraged Gentile Christians having a hard time. And he wrote this letter to them with that in mind. And it's awesome because it's always going to be relevant for us because we go through discouraging times, right? Maybe you're in here today and you're discouraged. Or you're doubting or you're seeking, or you're confused, or you don't know. I don't know what I believe. Is this stuff real? Why does it matter? Right? And so for Paul to pen this, and then for history to keep it pristine for us to the best of its ability, and then to come to us now, I mean, that's awesome. And so as we walk through this, at this point in the letter, Paul is preaching the gospel now. That's all he's doing. He's going to share the bad news. Because really, in order for us to understand how good good news is, we have to understand the bad, right? And it gets gritty. And then he's going to tell us what it means afterwards. Like, What does that mean for us to be saved? So let's do it. Let's dig in. Starting in verse 1 again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, let's stop there. Again, he's preaching the gospel. Um, the analogy that comes to mind is um, there was a famous minister who um, used to preach about sin very callously, or so it seemed to a lot of people in his, in his church. And he would preach very bluntly about sin and its effects, right? He would preach very bluntly about the wickedness of the world around us or even the wickedness in our own hearts and people. It made people uncomfortable. And so a person in his church came up to him after a service one day. I think he just came to his office and he was like, hey, pastor, is there any way you can kind of just simmer down on the sin talk? Man, it is, whoo. Making a lot of people really uncomfortable. Like, I mean, a lot of kids are really confused and they're coming home. And they're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize sin was that bad. And they're just, can you just simmer it down a little bit? And so the minister, I think being a rather smart guy, takes up a bottle of uh, strachnine or strachnine. I can't pronounce it. Strychnine. You guys know what I'm talking about, so that's good. I'm going to call it strychnine because I have the microphone. And so he picks up a bottle of this strychnine, which is a poison used to get rid of rodents and other uh, nuisances, maybe like small children. I'm just kidding. Um, and, and he picks up the bottle, and he goes, now, sir, let me ask you a question. If, 
I were to take the label off this bottle and maybe put, um, I don't know, uh, essential oils, essence of peppermint, you know, right? If I were to put that label on this bottle of strychnine, how do you think that would go? And the guy's like, well, that obviously would not be a good idea, right? That, I mean, that wouldn't work. I mean, that would be really dangerous for you to do because if someone consumes or even tries to smell of peppermint, they're going to be in for a rude awakening because that's straight-up poison. And the minister's point was, is that if we dumb down what the poison is, it puts people in grave danger. They need to understand to the fullest extent what sin is. And that's why he decided to be so blunt about his analogies with sin in that particular sermon that made people uncomfortable. And so for us, as we look at this first part, Paul is blunt about sin, straight up. I mean, he's telling you you're dead. Like, if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, you're dead. You're dead corpse. That's what it's saying. Blunt, right? Maybe that makes you a little uncomfortable. But it gets better. Just follow me here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to explain sin to us in a very in-depth and cool way. The first thing he's going to say is the world. And, and maybe what is the world, you're asking? The world is the systems and beliefs and structures that go against God and his ways. Put it to you this way. God created the world, right? Did he do it in seven days or six days? Did he do it over millions and billions of years of macroevolution? I don't know. It doesn't matter for this topic. But he created the world. This is his kingdom. This is his domain. This is his creation. He put time and motion and gravity and reason and all of it, boom, into the planet, and boom, here we are. This is his. And the Bible tells us we have rebelled against our maker and gone off and done our own thing. We have sinned. And so he starts off by explaining that sin is the world, meaning the systems that go against the things of God. And God has every right to be mad because, like, this is mine, he says. And you've rebelled against me. It's blunt, right? Remember, we have to understand the bad news to better understand the good news. What else does he say? He says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Essentially, he's talking about the devil. Right, We are all aware of the fact that there is a spiritual part of the world that we can't see, but we can feel it, and we know it. Look at the culture today. They're anti-religion, but they're all about the spiritual stuff. They're all about the spiritual stuff. I mean, divination and witchcraft and all the, the stuff, they're into it. Because they know that there's more to life than just what I f- see now. They just know it. They can't pin it, but they know it. And so the other part of sin that we have to understand is that there is a spirit that's against us, and that's the devil, right? Simply put, the devil hates God, hates his ways, and does everything he can do to add to the world system to make it hate God even more. And he wants to take us with it, right? Now, at this point, we've looked at sin, and it's like, oh, wow, I'm the victim, right? I mean, the world's against me. Like if you're a believer, right? The world's against me. The world's against God. The, the world's against his ways. And I got this devil guy coming after me too. Oh, wait, it's about to get worse. There's good news, I promise. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm not a victim anymore. You're not a victim anymore. Right? The truth of the matter is, is the system, the world, the spirit is all against God because the person, you, personal, me, personal, are also against God ourselves. I never taught my daughters how to lie. Or my son. I just, I'm picking on one of my daughters in my mind right now who is a very good liar. And like, we never sat down with her and we're like, all right, girl, so when you want to deceive someone, here's what you do. Right? Did you guys ever teach your kids to lie? No. They just know how to do it. Just instinct. We have to continually teach our children how to be good because their natural bend is towards evil. And anybody, like, it, it's funny that a lot of people would kind of get uncomfortable with that unless you've had kids. Then you're like, oh, I get it. I get it. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. Right? I love my kids to death, but, man, they're wicked at times. Right, but enough about them. What about me? Hmm? Right? Following the passions of our flesh. That word flesh. That word flesh essentially means the part of us that really likes to sin. Because let's be straight. Sin feels good. It does. For a few minutes. It feels good to rebel and go against the things of God. But again, remember... I'm painting this picture for you. This is God's world, and we've said, no, thanks. I'll I'll take your stuff, Lord. Thank you, but I I don't need you. Get out of here. I can make my own way. I can decide what's right and wrong for myself, right? And we all do that. We should all feel that weight of, oh, yeah, okay, I'm a sinner that's about to knock over a microphone. I saved it. It's cool. We're all sinners, Uh, For this week in class, I had to read a really old sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I had to read the whole sermon like I had to for an assignment. Man, that guy can describe hell in detail. It is rough. Um, I won't recite any of it for you this morning, but just know, like, he is a good preacher. And, you know, really good at talking about hell. Which, again, in our culture, we don't like. We're not big fans of. Now... That's the bad news. But what Paul's going to do now is he's going to shift. What Paul's going to do now is he's going to go from the bad news to the good, and he's going to start it off with a but. I call it the most beautiful but in the Bible. And you can get uncomfortable with me saying that, and that's okay. I mean grammatical but. not a, You know what I mean. I don't need to explain it. I imagine it like this. When a baby is born, before they come out of the womb, And if you don't know what a womb is, kids, ask your parents after church. It is a warm cocoon of safety for them, right? We were all there once. We're warm. We're comfortable. We're we're just filled with warm, gooey fluids, right? And if you've witnessed birth, it's pretty gross. But they're warm and comfortable, And then when they're born, all of a sudden they're ripped from that warmth. And then all of a sudden, oh, here's the cold world. Here's a cold metal table to get on. What are these things touching me? Ah! All they know how to do is cry. And then they're picked up and what what happens? They're handed to their mom. Now, 
what I'm trying to say here is, is that for us to understand the good news, we have to understand the bad. We have to feel the discomfort of sin and death and hurt. I got on TikTok just yesterday, right? It's a, you know, mindless video watching app that the kids love. All right, so I'm on TikTok. And there is a TikTok, and they do live videos. And there's a live video of, I think it was a man or a girl, I'm not sure, but they're in the Ukraine hiding in a basement, fearing for their lives because they don't know if an air raid is going to come and strike them or not. And they're just live on TikTok for the world to see that. It was heartbreaking. We live in a broken and fallen and sinful world. There's no getting around it. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. But now what does Paul do? He brings on the good news. We go from the baby crying on the hard, cold surface of a table, not knowing what's going on, and now we get to be in the warm embrace of our mother. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The last part of verse 3 says, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That tells us that God is just. We don't like the idea of God having wrath and justice. But like, we don't like it for ourselves, but like if we got to witness the death of Hitler, we probably would have gleaned it a little bit, right? Maybe the idea even now is that Putin guy, right? He's a Russian guy. Maybe we would want to witness him get killed. And we would like that, wouldn't we? Right? Don't deny it. We all desire to see justice done on others, but it's really hard to think about when it's us and ourselves. Then we're against justice, right? Convenient, hard truth to swallow. But that's the point, right? God gave us that ability to want justice for things that go wrong. And so it's just totally cool if he wants justice for himself. Because again, this is his world. He made it, right? He made it. He gave us everything we could ever possibly need to survive. And we're like, you know what? No, I don't need you. Well, but I'll take your your fruit and your wood and I'll, right? I'll take your stuff, but I don't need you, Lord, right? And so we have to wrestle with that justice part. But then what else does it say? He's a God that is rich in mercy. Rich means he's loaded with mercy. It's not just justice and he's always angry. He's merciful. And we get that, right? I relate to it like sometimes my kids do something terrible and I'm just like, deep breath, love them, love them, love them, love them. And I show them mercy because I love them. And every once in a while they need that. Though also sometimes they need to get spanking too. Unless you're against spanking, then sorry, time out is what I meant to say. Cool. Just, all right. I don't want to get myself in trouble again. But do you see that? Rich in mercy. Shouldn't that just like move us? Shouldn't that shake us a little bit? It's the warm embrace of my mother after I've just been born. He's rich in mercy. Why? 
Because of the great love with which he loved us. And how did he show us that love? He showed us that love by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. Now, maybe you wonder, I don't understand this idea of having to die on the cross. I don't get it. How does that show love? How does dying show love? Well, I have an illustration for you. It's a little crass, but just hear me out, okay? Just go with it. Think of someone you love right now. Go ahead. Got him? Got him in your head? Her, him, your dog, I don't know, your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, person you have a crush on but secretly can't tell because you're too nervous. I don't know, whatever, whatever it is. I'm a youth pastor, so I say stuff like that, and it's cool. Because, anyways, think of someone you love. Okay, you got it. Now, imagine you're having a conversation with that person, and you're like, okay, oh, I just really, I just really have to show you that I love you. And this is the only thing I can think to do. You pull out a gun. And you shoot yourself in the head. Dead. Now you're probably thinking I'm crazy, right? Does that show love? No, that shows you're a psychopath. Chill. Let's try that scenario one more time. Ready? The person you love is in grave danger. And if you don't step in, they're dead. And then you step in, and because you step in, They live, you die. You sacrifice yourself. Does that show love? Yeah. That shows love. I like to think that I'm the type of father who would take a bullet for my kids. I really hope I am, should I ever have to do that. I hope I never have to do that, but I hope I'm that kind of dad. And I know you guys hope that as well. And that drive is in us because what? God put it in us. And if... If I can feel that intensity of desire to want to show my love for my family that I'm willing to die for them, how much more does our Creator have it for us when He desires to save us? Jesus was willing to die. I'm walking through the Gospel of John with uh, the teenagers on, on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings. And we're at the point of the story in John where um, Jesus is getting ready to be arrested. He's just sent Judas off to do the thing. Go do what you got to do, Mr. Judas. I like to call him Judas is a carrot. Iscariot is a carrot. Whatever. And he's off doing that. And then he's saying his last words to his disciples before he gets arrested. And in the text, Jesus literally says, I am willing to do this. No one takes my life. I am giving it up. I am willing to do that. Again, it goes back to this idea of the bad news. He's willing to do that because what? We're in grave danger and we need help. We can't do it. By grace, you have been saved, right? And so he shows how much he loves us by being willing to die. But then the gospel message goes even further, right? He didn't just die and then he was in the grave and all is well and done, right? He came back. The resurrection is proof that he is who he said he is. All the things he said, right? Like if you read the Gospels and you you come out at the end saying, hey, Jesus was a really cool prophet and a really wise guy. No, no. You can't give him that. Read what he says. He says, I'm God in the flesh. In John 14, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He's literally saying, I am God. Which means he's either a psychopath or he is who he says he is. And he proves who he says he is when he comes back from the grave three days after dying 
And he didn't just die like a little death. It was brutal, torturous, horrible death. And he did it because we were in grave danger and we needed saving. And he took on what should have been ours. He paid the debt that should have been ours. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And he does that just to show us his love. He does that to show us how merciful he is. Despite us deserving his wrath, he gives us his grace, right? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, at the beginning, I said that uh, Ephesians was written to discouraged Christians in a Gentile church who were feeling pulled in many directions, right? They were discouraged. They were confused. They were doubting. So Paul is preaching the gospel to believers to remind them of the gospel because they need to, they need to be encouraged by it. So I preach the gospel so that if you are not in Christ, join us. We've got plenty of room. And if you are in Christ and you're discouraged in your walk with the Lord, you can be encouraged by it. Because one, when we look at the first three verses of the text, everything he says about sin and wickedness and where you uh, stand is in the past tense, right? In which you once walked. That's the key there. And so then the beauty of the gospel message is that we no longer walk that way. We no longer drag our feet. We no longer stomp and walk in anger and bitterness. Now we walk in stride in the gospel. And that doesn't mean that we still don't get angry, and that doesn't mean we still don't doubt and and get discouraged as believers. But it means that if you are discouraged today, my push for you is you you just need to be reminded of the gospel, right? You need to be reminded that you were saved. You need to be reminded from what you once were. Positionally, You have been raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places with him. That means that if you are a Christian or want to become a Christian, you're welcome to it. Maybe talk to us afterwards. You have been adopted into the family of God. The maker and sustainer and creator of all things has said, you are now my son. You are now my daughter. That's like the best news ever. Because if God created all things and he lets me in on it and he adopts me and makes me his child, how awesome is that? Does that move you at all? Or have you been going to church for so long that you forgot how it should impact you? Because that's what happens, right? I've been saved long enough to know that that happens. And the gospel just kind of becomes that message I tell people about, but it doesn't really impact my life at all. But it should. It should. Now, What do we do with this? Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, you can't earn your way to right standing with God. Can't do it. You could be like the best person ever. Saint of saints doesn't work really because at the end of the day if we go back to verse 3 when it talks about our flesh even the good works we do are tainted by the fact that we usually just do them because we want people to look at us and see how cool we are right i hate to call it out but it's the truth i'm that way (laughs) 
it's hard and tempting to not be like, hey, look at me. I'm up here preaching. and I got the microphone. I'm cool. These people are all paying attention to me. Wow. Right? That's the flesh. Thankfully, God uses crooked sticks to make straight paths or however the saying goes. I am his broken vessel. Please use me despite my selfishness. <clears throat> but do you see the point? You are not saved by your own works. You are not saved by your good deeds. If you have done wrongs in your past and you continue, continually, <laughs> give me a second, continually, thank you, live in a state as if you have to make up for your past sins, no. Jesus already took care of it. You have not been saved by your works. You've been saved by his grace. Amen? No work you can do will make up for it because he's already done it. You are in like super great debt, kind of like, you know, our government. <clears throat> we have a lot of debt, do we not? Yeah? Okay. I got some debt too. It's cool. I shouldn't judge him too harshly. Jesus has paid the debt. We're scot-free. We're clean. It is a gift. The fact that you believe in God, if you believe in God today, is a gift from God. He gave you the faith to believe in him. Because you were incapable of doing it on your own because of your sinfulness. What a gift that is that he's still willing to give it to you even though you didn't want it. Or he got you to the point where you wanted it and then you chose him. However the debate goes or wherever you fall in those arguments, it doesn't matter. But you see what I'm saying, right? Okay, good. Cool. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. And verse 10. And then I'm pretty much done. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I want you to notice something. Did you notice it? I think I pointed it out at the beginning. I can't remember. I'm going to say I did. And you, I'm going back to verse 1. And you, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All right? Which you once walked. And now verse 10. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now. Let's pretend you're a master welder. You're like top of your class. Okay. Like your, your welding beads are like. I don't know, perfect angels or something. And they're like, whoa, and everyone's like, whoa, oh my gosh, look at this guy's weld. He's so good. And for the rest of, the, of your life, you're stuck um, knitting sweaters. Would you like that? No, I wasn't meant to knit sweaters. I'm a welder. That's what I do. That's what I'm good at. I feel that's what I'm supposed to do. I love it. I love welding. Ah, but I have to knit sweaters, right? Or uh, how about... Um, I'm really bad at basketball, guys. Uh, LeBron James, is he a famous? He's a famous basketball player, right? I think he's got a beard now, which looks really good, if I'm thinking of the picture correctly. All right, so LeBron James is a really good basketball player, right? Top dog, apparently. I don't think he beats Michael Jordan, but I'm from the 90s, so I prefer him anyways. But LeBron James is a famous basketball player. Let's say he can't play basketball anymore. All he can do is, I don't know, make espresso drinks for angry ungrateful customers. You think he would enjoy that? No, he wouldn't. My point is, is that if we as humans were created by God for God, 
then isn't it a kind of common dot to connect that if that's what we were meant to do, that we would be the most fulfilled, happy in that? Does that make sense? The argument that I'm making is, is that if you are here today and you were created by God for God and you're kind of still rebelling against it, like, you're LeBron James trying to make a latte, man. It's not going to work. You're going to be super bored. If you are looking for purpose and truth, if you are looking to be fulfilled, then get with what you were meant to do. We are all creatures of worship. We all worship something. I mean, atheists worship something. They just aren't aware of it. They either worship themselves, or they worship their stuff, or they worship their reason, their ideologies, whatever. But at the end of the day, that's what it is, because we are creatures of worship. This is God's world. He created it. It's in our hearts. That's what we do. We worship. We do. We all worship something. And so my question for you today is, what do you worship? And if you are looking for the it thing, come to Christ. He's waiting. And even though you are dead in your trespasses right now, he'll take you in. He will take you in like a mother holding her newborn baby for the first time. Mothers, think about that moment. I know you want to. Girls really like talking about birthing stories. Trust me, I've overheard a lot of them. The baby's been wrapped. Actually, there's a really good picture of my wife. I think you'll find it on Facebook. I think it was when Hannah was born. Oh, such a good picture, right? She's, she's exhausted because she, like, gave birth to this kid with, like, no medication, right? Tell her how strong she is afterwards, please, because that's, like, oh, she's really, really strong. And, and, and so she's just, like, Duh, dead tired. And, and Hannah, as a newborn baby, is, like, in her arms for the first time. And that picture is just so... Awesome. And that's what you can have, right? If you are looking for the answers, if you're trying to figure out what's real or what my purpose is, right? Like um, I saw a video that essentially says, like, what are the five main questions that people are always trying to figure out? What, like, that we're always trying to answer. How did I get here? Why am I here? Uh, how, do, how am I supposed to act or what morals am I supposed to follow? Um, what happens when I die? Or is it where do I go? I, well, I remember the four of them. I can't remember the fifth one. Because all humans are looking for those answers. And I'm telling you right now, this is the answer. This is the answer. This is the answer for those who do not know God and they're still stuck and dead in their trespasses and sins. Let him bring you to life today. And for believers, remember who Paul's writing this letter to. He's writing it to a church. He's writing it to Christians. And he's saying, stop living in the past. This is what you are. This is what you are in Christ. You are not who you once were. You are not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by those sins you can't seem to quit doing. You are defined in Christ. Find encouragement in that. And then use that to get up and keep fighting and keep going. Let's pray and I'll let you guys go. Father God, we just, uh, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you are a God who is 
just and merciful. That you gave us the answer we're looking for. That you gave us the purpose that we knew we needed, but tried to find it elsewhere. For those who are seeking, make yourself known to them. Reveal yourself to them. Help them to see that you are there and that you are good and that they can come home. That they can come into your arms and you will love them and carry them and give them the purpose and and, and everything that they need and desire. And I pray for the believers in here now. Lord, maybe they've been saved for many years, but they have forgotten the power of the gospel in their lives now. Help them to remember it. Help them to be moved by it. Help them to want to live their lives out of those truths. Help them to see that they're not defined by their past, but they're defined in you ultimately. And that your grace is sufficient to get them through their discouraging times. Thank you for this time, Lord. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Have a good week.